Brothers and sisters, friends, I see some enemies. Hey guys, it's Kevin, and you're listening to Connecting the Dots. Thank you all for taking the time to listen in today. I always appreciate it. Without your time and open minds, I'd just be some other guy talking into an empty microphone. So I truly thank you. I truly appreciate it. I hope this episode finds you sound and strong and better than the last one. Today we're going to be looking into a new book called Winners Take All by Anand Giridardis. Uh huh. I, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. As usual, I can read all these fucking books all day long, but I have an extremely difficult, t- difficult time uh, pronouncing last names, so I'm just going to call him Anand, or the author. I do know this guy, though. I followed him on social media, and for the most part, I really respect his opinions and his insight. He's a former correspondent for the New York Times. He's a political analysis, an author, and a teacher of journalism. I actually followed him on social media randomly. Uh, I just appreciated his statements and insight, but uh, one day when I was at the bookstore looking for new books to buy, I actually recognized him by name, so I picked up the book and I bought it. I was excited. I, I, I was excited to recognize him, but I will be honest, um, I like the author. I still like the author. But this book is uh, it's actually far from being one of my favorites. It just didn't land the way that I thought it would. Uh, maybe that's my own fault for having expectations. Regardless, uh, this was still a decent book. had a lot of information to provide, so it makes a cut. Because this book has so much uh, to, to provide for, for readers. Um, and it covers different topics that we've been covering, like... Uh, the existing inequalities between the rich and the rest, the different methods that the rich try to deploy to to help, the fakeness or hypocrisy of certain wealthy people, and he questions the help and the sincerity of the extremely rich because at the end of the day, their help maintains the status quo, and that's uh, worth looking into. So although this book was not the most exciting to me, and I'm only sharing that to be fully transparent, uh, it still covers a lot of stuff that we've been talking about, and at the very least, it will get you thinking twice about certain solutions provided by the rich and their guidance, because their guidance is meant to direct the poor and the middle class. But, I mean, that's really just my opinion, it's just my my sentiment on it, um, but you guys should really listen to the episode first so you can get a clear understanding, and even more so, you should read the book yourself so you can decide for yourself. Regardless if I like the book or not, the content is still very valuable, and that's why we're covering it. But with all that said, guys, let's get to it. Before we dive into the deep shit, there's a few things that I should make clear now. Let's just recap real quick. All this time, we've been covering these books and these issues, and what do they keep saying about change? What do I keep reiterating on this podcast? Change? Social transformation? Where, where do they come from? Who incites this? Well, it comes from us, right? Isn't, isn't that what we've been saying all this, t- all this time? Change and social transformation comes from the bottom up. Social transformation does not come from the top on behalf of the people. Change comes from the people and for the people. Now, if someone, it doesn't matter who it is, if it's this guy's rich or poor, a celebrity or a nobody, if they start coming in and they start saying shit like, I'm doing this for the people, I'm doing this for you, you should be very alarmed. Social change is not carried out by one group or one person for the benefit of another. This is a no-no, and I'm sharing this right now, so in the future, you can recognize any opportunists like this, and that's what they are. Fucking opportunists. The people choose their leaders, and they work closely with them. They communicate with them. You cannot self-appoint yourself as a savior or believe that you know what is best for others, no matter how fucking smart you are. 
the people, they are the ones that demand changes. They demand justice. They demand equality and respect. So change comes from the people. Change does not come from anyone else, especially those that already hold power and wealth and status. Those people are in charge right now. And the truth is, if the political will existed, changes would have been implemented a long time ago. Meaning if the rich, the military, the politicians wanted to make something happen towards society's benefit, it would have fucking happened by now. Plain and simple. But the reality is, the powerful, they need to benefit from change in order for that change to be worth undertaking in their eyes. Which is why genuine progress, genuine changes, usually derive from the people mobilizing. Nobody else. But if the elites don't possess the political will to make something happen, things like, for example, universal health care or child care or senior care, simple things, for they just won't happen unless we force it. And that makes us the spark. That makes us the catalyst. What I'm reminding everyone is that we can only get the changes we seek if we carry them out ourselves. Nobody else can do it for us. And that's the fucking truth, man. I've already said this multiple times and nobody is coming to save us. Superman isn't going to fly out of the sun to set things straight. No politician is going to do it. Yes, that means AOC and Bernie, as well-intentioned as they may be, can't happen that way. No celebrity can create a startup or an organization or a charity to save the world, even if that guy's your favorite athlete or singer. And billionaires can't throw money at issues and instantly fix them. Change comes from us. From you, your friends, your family, and what you guys choose to accept and reject. Nothing changes if you don't change, or if you don't care to change. Although I simply and only relay the information from these books in pretty much every episode so far, I do try really hard to challenge whoever is listening to let the change come from them in whatever way they can. This is imperative. Last season, I ended the season by advocating and asking for listeners to revolutionize themselves. This is necessary. We cannot fight these enduring social issues from the same standpoint and the same mindset that we had when we allowed these issues to exist. Fucking obnoxiously loud car. Well, these issues, they require us to change. If we, if we want to change the status quo, we got to change a little bit too. You cannot remain the same person when you want to change the status quo. If you think you can help or contribute by doing the same old thing and thinking the same old way, then you're wrong. I'm sorry. More is necessary from all of us because right now we are falling so far back behind. We have a lot of time to... We have, we have, we have a lot of ground to cover. The hour is late. We gotta catch the fuck up now. Politics is not win-win. You have to make sacrifices. This includes, yeah, possibly sacrificing our past selves. We cannot get the changes we want and not make any efforts to not change at the same time. Now, with all that said, right out the gate, I, I hope you keep this in mind, not just for the remainder of the episode, but for always, so that it can help you see the genuine among us and the opportunist. That's what we're here to talk about today, the opportunist. The title of this book is called Winners Take All. And just to clarify, the winners are, he's actually referring to elites, the rich, the corporations, the people of that cloth. So I'll just use the term winners and elites interchangeably. It's basically the same thing. But this book is very much focused on what the author calls the win-win mentality. You know what this is. It, it, a conflict arises. Now there's some problems. And to alleviate the problems, we can make it so everyone wins and everyone comes out feeling good. 
Now, this might work with children or, or siblings, but this definitely cannot work in politics. And definitely not in, within our political climate. But the elites, they hold this win-win mentality, which is basically the, the frame of mind that consistently seeks out mutual benefits in all interactions. Win-win means that the agreements are mutually beneficial and satisfying for all parties, but it can be very misdirected. You cannot have, cannot come out of a situation with a win-win when that situation is regarding poverty or war or human rights violations. Shit like that. I said earlier that social change needs to be initiated from the bottom up, from the people, from the everyday, regular Americans. If that's the case, then why would elites want to get in on this? Why would elites want to march and chant and protest with us? Why are organizations like Nike, Amazon, the NBA, why are they out here making commercials advocating for social change? Why are millionaire politicians out here reiterating the same chants and slogans and songs that protesters are? Well... That's because the elites and the powerful, they want to lead social change because they have the most to lose from genuine social change. This is a very critical statement. It's a very critical perspective, honestly, but it is necessary. Think about it. Who has the most to lose in our country? Not the poor. Not the working class. Not the homeless. Not the uninsured. Not the immigrants. It's the rich. The elites, the celebrities, the athletes, the politicians, the corporate kings and their lawyers and the judges and the police and all the people who possess status and comfortability provided by the system, the current system. When the system works for you, and you reap the benefits of upholding it despite its shortcomings for everyone else, yeah, you potentially have a lot to lose from genuine social change. But if you start demanding the redistribution of concentrated wealth that was created by the labor of the working people, well, now the rich and the business owners and the entrepreneurs and the corporations, they're going to be pissed. If you start asking for nationalized healthcare, then the insurance industry and Big Pharma and other corporations, yeah, they're going to be pissed as well, and so on and so on. Genuine social change to me, just to me, is when the last shall be first. And the elite, the powerful, the contemporary winners, they simply can't have that, because right now, they're in first, and they aren't about to just hand that position and that power over. Power is taken. It is not given. This is why... Something like self-empowerment is so important so people can start appreciating their own worth as a fucking human being. And as a result, you stop tolerating all these injustices and inequalities and social issues that are surrounding you. So the rich, the powerful, the elites, they're all for social change, yeah. Till that shit starts to creep up on them, starts coming for them, starts stepping on their toes. But genuine and fundamental social change comes at the expense of the most powerful and the wealthy. So naturally, yeah, they're going to be very concerned with the trajectory that the people choose to take. In fact, this is why it might be easier for them to come along to make sure, yeah, we don't ask for anything that starts bothering them. Don't infiltrate their world. Elites will be seen fighting for change, surely, but with business and self-interest always on their mind. Now, the author introduced me to a new term. Uh, in this book called a philanthrocapitalist. It is a combination of what a capitalist is and a what a philanthropist is. The contradiction should be obvious because philanthropy is this very charitable, compassionate, and responsible thing to do, and a capitalist is diametrical to all of these qualities, especially in this country. So obviously these two things are incompatible. But these uh, philanthrocapitalists, 
These are the people who have the ability to do tremendous good that goes way beyond what most people uh, can. They have larger platforms, more money, more wealth, more status, more fame, and you can do a lot more with that. Philanthrocapitalists, these these can include, uh, I don't know, like celebrities, CEOs, billionaires, athletes, people like that. Um, But these people, they're not elected. They aren't chosen. And they aren't in it the same way that organizers and activists and grassroots leaders are. They're self-appointed, and that alone could be, could be very problematic. The author states that a philanthrocapitalist even appropriates the language of movements and love, using words like solidarity, community, selflessness, justice, shit like that. They'll be out here acting like renegades, like rebels, like they have a bone to pick with the system, the same system that allowed for them to become wealthy in the first place. They also will deny their own power and their own influence, which is very alarming, given how fundamental it is to their very existence. How can a politician say, I'm not powerful? How can the president say, I'm not powerful? How can a billionaire say, I'm not powerful? When a powerful person tells you they don't have power, it's kind of weird. It's like a deflection of their status and their power in society and their place in society. To deny power and influence is to attempt to portray themselves like one of us. But I'd actually feel a lot more comfortable if you acknowledge your privilege and your power and if you actually use it to make some fucking noise, to cause some disruption, lift some eyebrows, set a new tone. That way I know you're at least not lying to my fucking face and I can believe your sincerity. We have to be able to differentiate between the sincere and the opportunist amongst us. But these elite philanthrocapitalists who claim to want to change the world, they don't involve themselves in the grassroots movements or community meetings. They don't work with organizers or activists or people that know what they're doing. They live private and secluded lives. We've already listed many disparities between the rich and the rest of us, the elites and the rest of us. How could they claim to have humanity's humanity's interests at heart when they're not even connected to us? To be fair, a lot of people in the middle and the working class and the poor classes, they also are not connected to their the, to their own neighbors, to their own humanity. Otherwise, we might have a lot more solidarity and cohesion amongst us. But how could the rich and the wealthy and the powerful alleviate our issues when they don't even face the same fucking issues as us? Look, if, if you were born into privilege, fine. That, that was no more in your control than someone who was born into poverty. But both people need to reflect on their position in the world and how they can best utilize their position to change what they can. Good intentions are not enough. Good rhetoric is not enough. Especially without reflecting on yourself and confronting your own privilege and wealth and power. I just talked about these uh, philanthrocapitalists and how they were utilizing terms like community and love and shit like that. And this is true. I'll get more into the specifics of that later. Um, But right now, we have elites out here speaking of themselves as if they are liberators. Liberators of mankind. This is how they view themselves and how they exalt themselves. So, yeah, now you too, fellow American, can be liberated through their company, their services, their products, their app, their shit. That shit ain't gonna save us. So get the fuck out of here with that. The book makes the point that elites spread the idea that the people must be helped, yes. But only in market-friendly ways, only in corporate-friendly ways that do not upset the fundamental power structure. Do you see how insincere this is now? See it all the time. Companies like 
companies like Netflix and Amazon putting out statements in solidarity. Like they, they make commercials emphasizing their charity and how they benefit mankind and shit like that. Look, it, it's a nice sentiment. But I'm a critical motherfucker, so they can do that shit all day, honestly. But I won't give a fuck until Amazon and Netflix start paying their fucking share of taxes. Till they let their people unionize. Till they pay living wages to all their fucking workers. So the middle class can be a little bit unburdened. I'll be impressed with structural and fundamental changes like that. Not some photo op that you turned into an act of charity. But this is the elite's market mindset, as the book says. The market mindset. They, they seek to inspire the rich to do more good. Yes. But they never tell them to do less harm. Inspire the elites to give back, sure. But never tell them to take less. Inspire them to join the solution, but never accuse them of being part of the problem. This is where we differentiate the genuine from the phonies. Social change will require sacrifice on part of the rich and the powerful, the corporations, the military, the police, and anyone else who holds power and money. But the longer that they deny that sacrifice and that compromise, then we continue to invite mass conflict, and you know what that can lead to. So let's talk a little bit about some of these guys then. Has anyone seen or heard of uh, The Social Dilemma? It's on Netflix. It's about social media. It, it was pretty huge. I remember a lot of people talking about it last summer. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, if you have seen it, then you remember a bunch of famous tech people being interviewed for the film or the documentary, and they just provided their insights and their expertise and all that shit. One of those people uh, who was interviewed for the film is named Justin Rosenstein. Look back on it, and, and you'll see him in there. Rosenstein is a... He's huge in Silicon Valley. Uh, they, don't, they don't tell you really who he is uh, in The Social Dilemma, but he's actually a programmer and a product designer. He helped start shit like Google Drive, he co-invented Gmail Chat, and then he moved to Facebook where he was a co-inventor of the like button. Before he was 30, he was rewarded with millions of dollars in stock by all these companies. So, Rosenstein epitomizes one of these uh, philanthrocapitalists. The author interviewed him and he said he is determined to serve others because he believes himself to be a deeply spiritual person. He says, and I quote, I think we're all in this together, in a really deep sense. Somewhere deep down, we all actually share the same soul that we're basically just, I avoid the word God generally, but like consciousness, because we have basically one consciousness looking out through many different people, end quote. To be quite honest, I, I too believe that we are all connected. I think I can expand on it and articulate it a little nicer than Justin, uh, but I share his sentiment. I'll, I'll, I'll share that sentiment some other time in another episode, because I could go off on that. But Rosenstein, this guy feels burdened and compelled to help his fellow man. So with all his resources and all his wealth and all the opportunities he has available to him, his solution was to start up a company. And he named this company Asana. Maybe you know them. They, they've sold uh, software to other companies like Uber and Airbnb and Dropbox. Now, Justin genuinely believes that his company's function, Asana, could help improve the human condition and human productivity. He said, quote, When you think about the, the nature of human progress, when you think about the nature of life, like whether it's improving healthcare or improving government, or making art or doing biotechnology or doing traditional philanthropy, whatever it is, all the things that can move the human condition forward or maybe the world condition forward are all about groups of people working together. And so we were like, we really could build a universal piece of software that could make everyone in the world 5% faster, right? On the whole, we think that that's going to be a very 
net positive solution. Well, it, again, it's a nice sentiment. But unfortunately for Rosenstein, America does not have a productivity problem. In fact, we can be extremely productive and efficient. Why? Because we have a strong and hardworking middle class and working class and even poor. Even poor class. The issue in this country is that the gains and the wealth created by the working people and their productivity is not being given back to them. It is being reaped by elites. In fact, we hold remarkable growth in productivity. It, we can be very productive. But we also hold atrocious stagnation for working people's wages. Rosenstein wanted to make people more productive. But that was never the fucking issue. Our people are not stagnant. We are not inefficient. But what is stagnant are our wages. Our hourly wages and the minimum wage who hasn't fucking moved up in decades. The people in general are very productive. Look at the technology we have available to us. But their wages are not rising with their productivity and the advanced technology. And this is where the problem is. And Rosenstein fucking overlooks this. It's also a root of a problem, but not everyone can see that, as we've talked about before. This podcast tries really hard to get you to look at the root of our issues. Rosenstein wanted to make the people and everyday guys more productive. But the everyday guy, the everyday woman, they don't reap the benefits of their productivity because the wealth of that productivity is concentrated. It's not distributed to the worker except through low hourly wages or salary. So if anything, this might actually be contributing to the fucking problem because increasing productivity is beneficial to the capitalist class, not the workers. But this man was convinced that his approach would benefit the world, benefit everybody. Although he may have had genuinely good intentions, he also probably made a lot of money with his idea. And self-sustainment is not genuine to social change. Business people, they follow money, follow capital, opportunity. They don't follow social change. Again, you cannot change the world while profiting from the status quo. So, in order to spread this market world mentality, as the book calls it, this method that the rich have the solutions, that corporations have the solutions, and that they have our benefit in mind, well, they, they need to have someone to advocate for them, someone to speak on their behalf. These are the thought leaders, the so-called thought leaders. I'm sure at some point you've encountered one or two, whether it be online or in person maybe. Justin Rosenstein, he actually needed some thought leaders, among others, to convince the public that the elites were agents of change, that they had the solutions to their problems, and that they, that they make sure that they, meaning the elites and the wealthy, are not labeled as part of the problem. That is the role of a fucking thought leader. Thought leaders, if you didn't know, these are the motivational speakers, the TED talkers, the corporate lecturers, the corporate advisors and consultants. They are the influencers, the quote-unquote community managers, the curator, people like that, all these people. They are educated, yes, and they possess charm and enthusiasm. That's why they're given that position. And they even have access to exorbitant amounts of money, either personally or through their corporate masters, their corporate employers. But they are not worth following. They just seem like they are. The author says that they have, these thought leaders, they have commodified thoughts. And we know that not all thoughts are worth following. Especially from businessmen who have business all up in their fucking thoughts. Thought leaders, they're on the payroll for corporations and they're employed by plutocrats, aka the very rich. The author actually compares thought leaders, uh, he, he says that they're elite psychics. So a thought leader is 
a sidekick of, a, of an elite. They deploy what their masters want them to deploy. They leave out many serious issues and fundamental problems, and of course, they leave out any radical solutions. They want change, but not the kind of change that changes the system, the same system that led them to be elites and plutocrats and thought leaders in the first place. In fact, they can't even use words like social justice in, in this market world mentality because it's too controversial, for that crowd at least. This tells you, this alone should show you that they don't even have the same concept of social justice or social change in mind. We're not on the same page. Social change for them and from them is not the social change that we need. The book says they even compare unions, or these thought leaders and these elites, they, they compare unions to cartels and uh, protests to war zones. I'm sharing this just to offer some insight in, into their perspective and how they view things. We're not cut from the same cloth. We do not see from the same lens. To sum it up, the author says that thought leadership is where charlatans go, and I do not disagree. Despite that, though, in our society right now, it is currently the best of times for thought leaders and the worst of times for intellectuals. There is a huge difference between thought leaders and intellectuals. Intellectuals, they are the adversary of power. They are critical. Um, they, they oppose usually the system. And intellectuals, they choose to distance themselves from the state, from the market, uh, from, from the system. How could you like and accept something that is cruel and a source of so many issues? When you understand it, you can't accept it. The thought leader is much more pleasant with the powerful, with the system. Thought leaders know one big thing, and they believe that their one big idea will change the world. Kind of like uh, Justin Rosenstein. They're not critical. They're optimists. They tell uplifting stories. They reason from their own experience, which is also a no-no. They deduce. They don't deduce or analyze society. Um, they go easy on the powerful, if anything. Intellectuals have to defend their ideas. They have, they have to defend their assertions in public and from other intellectuals. Thought leaders give fucking TED Talks. There's, there's no room for rebuttal or criticism there, where they advocate for hopeful solutions instead of systemic, fundamental, or radical changes. Public intellectuals, they, they, they're a threat to the elites. They're a threat to the system, especially if they can garner a big enough following. But thought leaders, they promote elite values. They talk up self-empowerment and entrepreneurial possibilities instead. Very different. These guys are, could not be further apart. Let's exemplify this then. Andrew Zoli, uh, he's a thought leader and a consultant to Nike, General Electric, and Facebook. He holds the belief that rooting out the world's biggest problems like poverty and global warming should be less of a concern than simply learning to live with such issues. What the fuck, dude? This guy believes that these issues are they're here to stay. People just have to learn to cope with them, deal with it. I could not disagree more. But do you see how easy it is for a corporate consultant to say some dumb shit like that when he personally does not have to face the consequences of poverty and global warming? How could he face poverty? He's fucking rich. I, I just gave you his resume. General Electric, Facebook, Nike. What the fuck? How could global warming scare him when he has the resources to simply relocate when environmental catastrophe presents itself? Global warming and environmental changes are going to cause mass migrations. A lot of people don't have the fucking resources or the money to just relocate like that. That's no problem to this guy, though. So that's why he's saying just deal with it. Just accept it. I'm not going to accept shit, bro. When it's our military, 
when it's our corporations that are the biggest polluters on the planet. Yet, he's the one out here telling the rest of the people, this is an opportunity. We can do this. We can cope. Fuck that. At this point, people are more polarized and tribal than ever. We've talked about this before. People are usually, they only seek to hear what confirms their beliefs. They don't want to hear other perspectives. Or their immaturity literally cannot allow that. Ego and ignorance, they, they don't want to hear different perspectives. That's why different perspectives are so hard for people to accept or even tolerate. Right now, the people who have lost trust in authority, rightfully so, be because, because they have lost trust in authority, this depowers intellectuals because people view them as authority for some reason, even though there are plenty of intellectuals that are nothing but critical of authority and the status quo. But this makes intellectuals dismissible, and it creates an opening for thought leaders to emerge. You see that now? Well, now people are resenting the intellectuals because they view them as part of authority. Now you have a gateway. Now you have an opening for thought leaders to come in so we can hear what we want to hear, right? Now we have people who are looking uh, to thought leaders for explanations and guidance. And these thought leaders are in good standing, usually with millionaires and corporations. This is dangerous. If thought leaders remain publicly positive, if they remain unthreatening and silent about structural or fundamental issues, if they, if they remain pleasant to the rich, if they're big on private problem solving and devoted to the win-win mentality, these thought leaders, they're going to edge out a lot of the voices of intellectuals. People don't want to hear intellectuals anymore. Because people want to hear what they want to hear. In this way, yeah, we are partly to blame. We are not being responsible or diligent enough. We are letting these fucking charlatans come and mislead us. Let's see then why this is a potentially dangerous path. Thought leaders, they, they, the book says thought leaders have a system. And that system is broken into three steps. The first step is that thought leaders focus on the victims of social problems. They do not focus on the perpetrators. This is coming straight from a guy named Adam Grant, who is an upper echelon thought leader. Thought leaders believe that focusing on the perpetrator, the one who's causing the problem, is a win-losey approach. It's not win-win. This guy propo proposed a more pleasant way of dealing with an issue like, like sexism that fits the win-win approach. He says, quote, In the face of injustice, thinking about the perpetrator fuels anger and aggression. Shifting your attention to the victim makes you more empathetic increasing the chances that you'll channel your anger into a constructive direction. Instead of trying to punish the people who caused harm, you'll be more likely to help the people that were harmed. This is a natural departing point from everything we discuss and advocate on this podcast. Thought leaders want to focus on victims instead of perpetrators. We should want to direct our focus to not allowing people to become victims in the first place. There is a difference in the approach, yes. Yes, anger can consume people. But anger and outrage are necessary for social change. Moral outrage is necessary for social change. You won't want to advocate for shit if you're not pissed off by shit. You won't be pissed off by shit if you don't have an understanding of what the fuck is happening. This is a natural deflection. Oh, don't look at the, don't look at the perpetrator. Don't look at the guy who caused the problem. Go look at the victim because they need you. So what, we're just going to let this guy go around and create more victims in? Come on, man. The second step is to personalize the political. Thought leaders, they frame problems as personal and individual issues. We've talked about this before. 
A lot of the issues we face are collective and systemic ones. They're not necessarily personal or individual. We've talked, we've covered this thoroughly. The author provides the example of looking at the streets of Baltimore. If we take the thought leader approach, we can see gang culture, baggy pants, low income, and lethargic people as the issue. That's the thought leader approach. If we expand the scope, we can see over-policing, lack of resources, lack of investment, and weak social, social structures as part of the issue. If we expand the scope even further, we can look at the intentional social control that has been enforced over African Americans in this country for centuries, combined with enduring racism. This is a huge departure from how we choose to look at social problems, myopically versus critically and comprehensively. If you're, we talked about this a couple, episode, a couple episodes ago. If your perspective is narrow, your understanding is narrow. Expand your perspective to expand your understanding. Ignorance, ignorance allows for myopic vision. They go together. When you're ignorant, you have little understanding. It doesn't mean you're dumb. It just means you're unaware. Thought leaders have a different method, a different tactic. Let's choose to be intentionally myopic so we don't have to see the big picture. Because if we start looking at the big picture, people are going to start asking tough questions. And I can't answer that. The third step is to be constructively actionable. In other words, there are already provided and guided solutions to alleviate the problems that we face. People learn of social issues or injustices and they immediately want a list of easy and quick tips on how they can help, what they can do, and how they can contribute. The intent is nice. It means people care. But there are no quick fixes. There are no shortcuts. This is not an, there's not an issue in this country that you can throw your individual effort at and expect it to be remedied. But thought leaders teach that this is possible. They remain committed to their optimism and detachment. In addition, solutions are not limited to the ideas of fucking, ideas of fucking thought leaders. In typical American fashion, Americans will look to thought leaders totally stupefied, asking what they should do as if they were asking a parent or a teacher for instructions. Then we look to remedy the solution in the easiest, quickest, and most convenient way possible. So we can call it a day and go back to our regular lives. Let me just tell you right now. There are no easy solutions to the issues that we are facing. And there's a good chance some of them, most of them, might not be ameliorated within your lifetime. That's how serious this shit is. So don't let some motherfucker tell you that there are 10 easy steps to turn the world around. These, it's the most convenient way of trying to rectify all of our problems. There is no convenient way. It's going to take work. It's going to take collective action. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take time. There's no easy way. There's no easy solution to this. But Americans like to think that. We've been, we've been spoon-fed a lot of shit. So we're carrying that mentality around and you can't apply that shit to social issues. But these three practices, the three steps that we just listed, they are very harmful. They're more harmful than they are helpful. Clearly. But it can be easy to accept the system when the system tells you that you are changing things. We know this isn't the way though. One thought leader, his name is Simon Sinek, uh, this guy had the intention of writing a book. And just so you know, writing a book is no easy fucking task. But when it came down to doing his research for the book, the guy said, quote, If books need to be read, I'll ask somebody to read it for me and then explain it to me. And then let me ask questions. Huh? 
This man felt entitled to write a fucking book to make impressions on possibly millions of people. And he couldn't even commit to the process of doing it with integrity and thoroughness and responsibility. And yet, these thought leaders are fucking edging out our intellectuals? You can see his practice. You can see how serious he takes this shit. But, you still want people to read your fucking book? What? Look, I I don't do shit on this podcast except apply a critical perspective and advocate for others to read and research. But, God, do not read his fucking book. Please don't. This guy is speaking on a topic, sharing his voice, and yet he is unburdening himself by not even bothering to read other people's research and insights. This could not be fucking lazier. This is, there's, a, there's not a motherfucker on this earth that is good enough to do some bullshit like this and then feel comfortable enough to take himself seriously and expect others to take him seriously as well. Wow. These people are... These people oversimplify the content of their lectures or their work or whatever it is you want to call it. And then they offer up oversimplified solutions to the issues. Cynic, the, the, the thought leader guy, he even said, quote, I'm a preacher of a gospel, and I'm looking for people to join me in the gospel and preach the good word. What? Can you imagine an activist or an advocate or an intellectual or a teacher acting like this while sharing their perspective and their voices? Thought leaders unburden themselves from scholarly research because scholarly research is fucking hard from reading, from peer reviews, from criticism or anything like that. This is blatantly irresponsible. And yet they feel entitled to get up and speak to millions of people as if they have, like, the fucking right to influence them. And then the people eat that shit up. They have one big idea that sounds good, orally, yes. And they spend most of their effort perfecting how well their idea comes across, rather than ensuring that it's even a fucking good idea in the first place. You have to excuse my disgust, but let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about Edward Snowden. If you've never heard of him, he is the world's most famous whistleblower, and he is the antithesis to the market world mentality. If you don't know who Snowden is, look him up, um, or check out, I think he's got a movie on Netflix uh, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He he plays him and and portrays the story. But anyways, uh, this guy was a featured guest speaker for a summit filled with these philanthrocapitalists, via webcam, of course, because he's wanted by the United States government. But at one point, the host of the summit said... Uh, said their meeting or their assemblage or whatever was, quote, a platform for entrepreneurship and for justice. Okay. That's coming from the words of a philanthrocapitalist. But anyways, here's Snowden. He's an NSA whistleblower, a genuine lover and respecter of justice and truth. He risked his whole life to get the truth out. And he's talking to these guys about truth and freedom and social progress and all this dope shit. And the host host is listening. And when, when Snowden finishes talking, the host says this, quote, So I invest in founders for a living, and I gotta tell you, as I listen to you, I smell a founder here. You're talking about these things that need to be built. Are you going to build any of them? Because there's probably investors waiting for you. Edward Snowden, this guy might not have known who he was talking to, uh, because he was sharing his values and his experience and insight, and his audience is asking him about startups and business and money and self-promotion. Gross, dude. Justice and social change are naturally diametrical to business, being utilized as a way to cement social change or bring it about. This is a man who made a life-changing sacrifice, who risked it all, literally, to fight and expose the system. He cannot come back into this country. The United States government was his employer, and he made them his enemy for the truth. 
He ensured that the greater good was being enforced by blowing the whistle. And these guys are asking him if he has anything to promote. He did. It was reality. It was the truth. Y'all just didn't fucking hear that part while you were thinking about opportunities for yourself. <sighs> guys, as a result of so many emerging thought leaders and due to our acceptance of them as worthy leaders in our society, we are giving rise to some weak-ass theories for social change. We are personalizing depoliticizing and individualizing issues as well as remaining cordial and pleasant with the system and the status quo. When we do this, we are limiting our fullest potential for disruption and for change. These people are replacing critical thought and analysis with optimism and sunny solutions that don't require sacrifice, that don't require thorough effort. These elites are advocating for their style of change so it doesn't disrupt them or the status quo too much. This is the difference between an opportunist and someone who is committed to fighting the system, not being his buddy, not being his pawn. To quote Upton Sinclair, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. This is why social change derives from us. How can a cop, how can a politician, an entrepreneur, a philanthrocapitalist, a celebrity, a CEO, how can they understand our issues with the system when it is their job to maintain the system? That's why we don't appeal to them. We can't trust them to lead us. That's not their job. Their job is to maintain the status quo. And as the book and this episode have constantly reiterated, we do not change shit while profiting from the status quo. Private solutions are not appropriate for our public problems. What's good for business is not what's good for mankind. And what is good for mankind is not good for business. Elites want to keep starting up some new app, some new company that nobody asked for. Anyone that genuinely cares about the people's needs and their wants and their ailments will simply talk to them. They'll learn about them. They'll ask them what they need. They'll communicate with them. They'll get to know them in their environment and all the thoroughness that that entails. They'll talk to community leaders, to activists, to grassroots, and they'll work together. Someone that can apply themselves in this way they are genuine, but someone who takes it upon himself or herself to start something that finishes with financial profit, I doubt your sincerity. Elites believe that their solutions for social change should be at the forefront. They believe they have the best ideas. I mean, of course they would. Their fucking egos are huge. But their initiatives are not democratic and they do not reflect collective problem solving. Collective problem solving is the only way we get out of this bitch. They actually favor the use of the private sector instead. The private, se the private sector will not save us, you dumb fucks. The, the private sector is actually a big source of many of our fucking issues at this point. Those that reap the most benefits from the status quo want to be the ones that supervise the new changes to the status quo. We need to keep this in mind when observing the actions of our so-called leaders, whether they're elected or self-appointed. The truth is... Our elites, contemporary elites, they had predecessors, people that came before them. And those people, their predecessors, they helped destroy the working men, the working women, and they deepened our economic inequality and instability while hijacking our democracy and our institutions. And now these new contemporary elites want to come and save us? Get the fuck out of here with that. I put my faith 
and the regular men and the women of this country, those that know the realities and the harshness of the system. I trust those that are critical and empathetic. I respect those that stand with their communities and even people that aren't a part of their community through solidarity. We live in a society that adores the rich. We adore the famous, the powerful. We listen to them with open ears and we trust that they know what is best because one day we want to be like them. I mean, they must know what's best, right? Look how well they're doing for themselves. Of course I'll listen to you. You must know what you're talking about. We have to cut that shit out now. Or the rich and the powerful will convince you that you're making changes when you're doing absolutely nothing. Away with all these charlatans. Away with all these thought leaders and elites. We don't need them. We don't need their apps or their companies or their speeches. We don't need more products or clever slogans. We have all we need. We have responsible, intelligent, brave, and inspiring people all around us. They're you. The people listening right now. You think I don't know who I'm talking to? I see resiliency, strength, and ingenuity every day all around me. And in the absence of elites. In the absence of these philanthrocapitalists. The people around me, we, we just don't value it the same way we, we do with money. We don't need saviors. When we have all we need. Now it's just about doing something with our resources and our time. It would be criminal if we didn't. If you get anything from this episode, I hope it's the ability to see the genuine from the opportunists. There's tons of voices all around us, especially with the internet. It's just a lot of fucking noise. Sometimes it's very hard to listen. Sometimes it's even harder to find a sound voice to rely on. If it's hard for you to differentiate, then just remember this. The intellect is a foe to power. The charlatan embraces power. You can't hug the system while advocating for change. Alright guys, that's going to be it for today. Fucking tired. My, my voice, look, my throat gets tight as fuck after these episodes. Um, so excuse me. But thank you so much for listening and giving me the opportunity to share this book in this episode. I did mention it wasn't my favorite, but, but there's always something to learn or new perspectives to be gained. Of course, I'll leave the link in the description for anyone who's interested in purchasing it. Even if you don't, uh, you know, I wasn't really trying to sell it, to be honest. I hope you enjoyed this episode and the content that it provided. It all came straight from the book, so if you like this episode, heck, fuck, who knows, maybe you will like the book. But if anyone checks it out, let me know what your thoughts are on it. Um, I'll leave a link in the description for this episode's protest song recommendation as well. The song is by a band called Ten Years After, and the song is called I'd Love to Change the World. Dope song. Uh, I think it came out in like the 60s or 70s, so it's got major uh, 70s rock vibes, um, but they do have a line in the song that says, quote, tax the rich, feed the poor, until there are no rich no more. Dope ass song. It's honestly a gem. Listen to the lyrics. Give it a listen. Uh, I think people really like it, especially if you've never heard it before. I fucking love rock, so give it a chance. All right, guys, that's going to be it for today. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. Be cool, man. Until next time, peace. You know, we live in this time... Um and I was thinking about it when you're talking about the president, because he's kind of an example of this. He had a fake foundation. Um, they're not all fake. But we live in this time in which rich people, you can't walk down the street in Manhattan or other parts of the country without bumping into a rich person trying to change the world. Right. Mark Zuckerberg trying to change the world. Elon Musk is going to try to change the world. Jeff Bezos changing the world. They're all changing the world. More money being given away than has ever been given away in the history of the world. Right. Young people, all you know, elite graduates, elite campuses. We want to go to Africa, start a social enterprise, mm -hmm. turning recycled poop into coffee. Right. Um, with tote bags, Bono is involved, yes. a red iPhone case you get right. for free. And the question is, why is it 
that this era of extraordinary elite generosity, which is real, happens to coincide with an age of extraordinary elite hoarding. The very same class of billionaires and plutocrats who do so much to give and constantly talk about how much they give have a monopoly on the future in this country. The 1% in this country uh, takes 49% of new income. Yeah. Half the new income. And imagine if all the new income in this studio audience went to one person, right? Half of it. Imagine if another true statistic, the 0.1%, 0.1% owns more wealth than the bottom 80% of people in this country. Right. Um, the bottom half of people in this country on average have not gotten a raise, as many of you may know, in 40 years. Right. And so the question then becomes, what's the relationship between all this nice stuff elites do and this elite predation and the relationship that I discovered when I reported this book was that but, but, it's this nice, it's these nice deeds, the right. sprinkling of nice deeds that help us uphold a system in which rich people can monopolize the future, hoard progress and kill the American dream and not satisfied with that. They're trying to kill the planet now, too.